So let us hear God's word, Titus 3, beginning in verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Well, last time we concluded this subsection of Paul here, in particular, verses 3 to 7. And uh, in these verses, of course, Paul has been talking about how God has saved us. And he says that it's not by anything that we have done, but it's according to his mercy through Jesus Christ and then the work of the Spirit. God is showing his kindness, his love, his grace, his goodness to us who certainly do not deserve it. Now, last time we focused especially on how the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son who then poured the Spirit out upon us, and he did so in an abundant way. God did all this to make us his children, to give us an inheritance of relationship with God and, of course, eternal life and eternal blessing. He did so uh, here in time by declaring us to be righteous, um, and then this gives us a certain hope that the future blessings that are not yet ours will be ours, and will we be with God forever in glory. Now, since God has done this, his point that we've seen uh, here in this section is we should then relate to our neighbor, the unbeliever around us in society, in a similar way that God has related to us. Well, Paul now is bringing his letter to uh, really a conclusion. Uh, This appears in verses 8 to 11 especially to be his final main thought. His final main idea that he's giving to Titus and to the people in Crete. And then in verses 12 and following, it has more to do with some final greetings and things that he wants uh, Titus to do in terms of coming to him and so on. And so uh, the question for us then is how do verses 8 to 11 fit together? Um, Verse 8, some will say, goes with what precedes. Uh, Some will actually separate verses 9 to 15 and put that together. Um, But if if you notice how verse 9 begins with but, uh, that indicates to me that 
Paul wants us to put verses 9 to 11 with verse 8. And so there's some debate on how to take all of this, but I'm inclined to see verses 8 to 11 uh, to go together and yet to all be transitional, especially verse 8 here, uh, linking together verses 1 to 7 and then verses 9 to 11. So let's read then again verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. All right, well, first of all, here's another one of the the places where Paul uses this term here. Uh, This is a faithful saying. Uh, This wording here is very unique. Uh, Let's turn back to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, here's the first of these, and they're only found here in the pastoral letters. And so as he writes to Timothy and Titus, he says this actually five times altogether. So in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So here's the first of these three, and notice his emphasis on salvation from sin. And then if you look at chapter 3, Verse 1, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires a position of a bishop, he desires a good work. And so here, obviously, has to do with elders. But notice that in both of these occasions, the faithful saying follows, this is a faithful saying. Um, Let's turn now to chapter 4. And in verse 9, here it is again. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Now the question, more in this case, is... Does it refer to what he has just said or what he is going to say? And there's actually debate here, as you might expect, um, that some say before, some say after. Notice what follows. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe these things command and teach. And, and so um, some similar ideas to uh, what we saw, especially in the first one. Now, if you turn to 2 Timothy And chapter 2, this one clearly is referring to what follows. So verse 11, uh, 2 Timothy 2, this is a faithful saying, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so Paul here is referring to what he's going to say again, just like with the first two. So as we return here to Titus 3, here's the fifth occurrence. And again, it's only here in these pastoral letters. Obviously, this is important to Paul. This is something that he wants these two men to understand, and then, of course, by extension, all of us. Um, It's set apart in this way. And so the question then for us, in what way? What's he trying to emphasize? Now, in all five of these cases, uh, the Greek literally reads, the word is faithful. But probably all of our translations paraphrase that to some degree, the New King James saying, this is a faithful saying. Okay, so the word is faithful. What word and how is it faithful? And so as we come to this verse then, is he talking about what he has said or what he is going to say? Well, rather uniformly, uh, commentators think that Paul is referring to what he has just said. 
where they debate is how much of what he just said. Some will say verses 1 to 7, others 3 to 7, others 4 to 7. Um, and so uh, you, they go back and forth with their various arguments here. Um, as I mentioned a little bit ago, because of the but in verse 9, I see it more as transitional. And so it does conclude the previous section, but then transi- transitions us into the next thought. And so it is a faithful saying, right? God saved us in his kindness. But this then should also lead us uh, to what he is going to say. So, again, just some uh, debate on that. But um, I think it is pretty clear that Paul is referring backward to what, um, what he has just said in particular. And so the word of salvation that he has described for us, especially in verses 3 to 7, is faithful. It is a faithful word because Paul is saying the same thing as the apostles. Paul's word here is not unique. Furthermore, his word is faithful to the rest of God's word. And so it is faithful in that sense. And so it is true to scripture. And so the summary of God's word here in terms of uh, how he has saved us in these few verses is a trustworthy doctrine, we might say. And so it gives us hope, and it gives us confidence, as we ended with verse 7 last time. Now, in uh, these debates here, some have also uh, uh, wondered if Paul is actually quoting from an early creed, or possibly him, uh, in verses 4 to 7 in particular. And so for him to say, this is a trustworthy statement, or something to that effect, uh, makes sense, because he's quoting from something. Um, Maybe so. Maybe not. Uh, We can't say definitively. But there is no question that what Paul has given to us and what we've looked at in the last few weeks is vitally important for our understanding. And so the the importance is, it really can't be understated. Um, I, um, in this context, was reminded of how Uh, 30-plus years ago when I was in a Bible study at music school in Atlanta, uh, that part of our memory work included this section. Um, We were to memorize Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, along with a variety of other verses. Um, uh, Very significant. So, with that in mind, then, let's look more specifically at what he does say. Um, I'm inclined to say that Paul is putting this at the end of the letter as a kind of summary conclusion, a concluding idea as he draws his thoughts to a close. And so, yes, it brings to an end verses 4 to 7 or 3 to 7 or 1 to 7 even, but it's really bringing the whole letter to a conclusion, a kind of theme verse that governs everything that he has said. You might remember back in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, that uh, uh, I made mention there that some people think that those are the theme verses of the letter. You can understand why, but uh, I think the case can be made that this verse here in verse 8 is the theme verse of the letter. And so he says, these things, the things that he's just talked about, I want you to affirm constantly. Now, your translation... 
may say that a little bit differently. The New King James says to affirm constantly, which gives us the idea, let's hold on to it, never let go of it, right? Continuously affirm the truths of verses 4 to 7 especially, okay? And um, I, I think that's a fair point to make. Uh, if you have another translation, it may say that I want you to speak confidently about these things. So it's a slightly different meaning. Uh, I want you to speak confidently. Don't, don't apologize for the faith. Now, not apologetics, not defending the faith, right? But apologize, saying you're sorry, a little hesitant to, to speak about salvation to people. Don't do that. And so some... Um, uh, translations have it that way. I believe the New American Standard does. And actually, I think it's probably closest to what the Greek has in mind uh, there. Speak confidently about these things. If you have another translation, maybe it has the word insist or stress. I believe the ESV has it uh, this way. Okay? I want you to stress these things, to insist on these things. And that, too, obviously makes sense. Uh, we are to preach the gospel and insist on it. We are to emphasize that God saved us. And it's not anything that we have done. It's what God has done through Christ in the Spirit. And so it is central. It is important. And so insist on it. Stress it. Um, but Paul here um, certainly is saying those things. But notice what he says immediately next that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. The reason why we should insist on this, the reason why we should speak confidently and consistently about it, is because this isn't just some abstract idea. It isn't just some kind of spiritual thing that doesn't affect our everyday life. No, it does affect everything about us, okay? every part of our lives in one way or another. Christianity is a way of life. This is something that Paul has been saying throughout the whole letter, and here it is again. And so we are not merely to proclaim the gospel message as a kind of fire insurance. I'm saved from hell, and now I can do as I please. No, it should impact everything. Insist on this truth, and may it lead you to good works. Um, I was reminded as I was... uh, preparing this particular point of uh, the old Duran Duran song. I know I'm dating myself here a little bit, but some of you might remember way back in the 80s that they had a song called Save a Prayer. Save a prayer to the morning after. Don't pray for me now. No, no. Save a prayer for the morning after. And it's this idea that um, I'm going to live as I please tonight and I'll ask for forgiveness in the morning. Then pray for me. And it's like going to confession after you sin and you deliberately sinned. Um, that's not how Paul is uh, viewing these things. That good works is something that should characterize the life of the believer because God has saved us. And so note the so that, the in order that. I want you to affirm constantly, insist on this, speak confidently so that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. God has saved us, those who have trusted in him, so that we would live lives of godliness. Now the Greek uh, on that part of the verse uh, reads like this. Um, 
those who believed in God may continually be careful to engage in good works. And so note the continuous action here that Paul is communicating. We are not to do good works on occasion. We're not to do it merely on a Sunday morning or something like that. It should characterize everything that we do at all times and at all places. As I've said many times over the years, Christianity is a way of life. It's not just a few things we believe, a few things that we do or don't do. It should govern everything about us. And so we uh, must continually do this. And then it says that we must be careful to do these things. This isn't a casual thing that, uh, you know, we, we, we try a little bit, and if we succeed, fine. If not, no big deal. No, we must be careful to engage in good works. It's not a haphazard thing. It is something we engage in. We are devoted to good works as true believers. And then as he says here at the end of the, uh, the phrase here, not any activity, but good works. You know, people might be devoted to their man cave or to their favorite sports team or their favorite um, rock star or whatever it is, but we are to be devoted even more so with greater zeal, greater intensity, greater constancy to doing things that are good in God's sight. You know, I remember all the way back in chapter 1, we talked about what are good works. Well, our culture tells us what good works are. But they aren't necessarily good according to what God says. And so according to God's word, we must uh, engage in and be devoted constantly to doing what is good. Now, since Paul has just told us in verse 5 that our works do not save us, clearly he is not now saying that if you work hard enough that somehow God will be pleased and you can get to heaven. Not at all. We have been saved by the good works of Jesus Christ, which now leads us to live a life of good works. We must obey our Savior. All right, now the, the verse ends by saying, these things are good and profitable to men. When we engage in, devote ourselves constantly to good works, things that are pleasing to the, to the Lord, then it is good to others. It is profitable to others, to all men. And so note the two words here. The first one is good. And uh, this is the same word as good works, at least in terms of the adjective. And so we are to maintain good works. Now when we do, it is good to other people. Um, Now, though it's the same word, it does seem to have a slightly different meaning Uh, in the sense that these works are good, but then they are good for others. They benefit others, seems to be the idea, right? It's certainly profitable. The second word gives us that idea. Um, In Greek, there are actually two different words for good, and one of them emphasizes moral goodness, and the other emphasizes aesthetic goodness. Now, they can be synonymous. Both of them can be used in both ways. But generally speaking, uh, we have that distinction. And so in the first occurrence here, it's good works, clearly morally good works. 
But this second occurrence, these things are good, seems to emphasize something that is aesthetically good. It is pleasing. It is beautiful. It is beneficial. Seems to be what Paul is emphasizing. Certainly it's morally good. But again, it doesn't seem to be his, his nuanced point. Okay? A godly life obviously is morally good. It's pleasing to the Lord. It's according to his word. But it's also beautiful to see. Isn't it? When you watch a godly person, don't you find that attractive? Okay. Um, even if they're, we're not talking about physical beauty, but someone who is a godly person, they, they're more attractive to us. Maybe in a physical sense, but certainly in, in, in the sense that you want to become friends with them. You want to spend time with them. They're attractive because they do good things according to God's word. And so you might say they are pleasing to watch. They are um, uh, not just comfortable to be around, but you want to be around them because right, th- their goodness kind of rubs off on us, so to speak. And, and we enjoy that. We like that. Okay? And so those who are God-honoring, those who are saved and then are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, okay, um, this is enticing, and it should be. Now, unfortunately, we live in a culture today that would hear what I've just said and said, no, you know, people who do those things, they're just boring. There's no excitement in that kind of life. Or they'll say that people who insist on good works according to God's word are just mean or they're racist or some other crazy idea. Um, But isn't it exactly the opposite? Those who maintain ungodly works those who are devoted to things that are not good in God's sight, doesn't that lead to hurt and problem? Don't people become ugly? And sometimes even physically, okay, in terms of their attractiveness or handsomeness or whatever. And certainly it leads to judgment, right? And so when Paul is, is speaking here, I, I think this is the point he's driving at. If we are going to be a Christian, if we're going to say that we love Jesus, then we must live in such a way that is an attraction to others. If they don't want to spend time with us, if they don't think that, they, that we are worthy of their time and attention, then you have to wonder, what are we doing? Are we doing the right thing in this sense? All right, now the other word is very much related here. Um, these things are good and profitable to men. And so here the end of verse 8 of Titus 3. Um, the word here, profitable, uh, pretty straightforward in this case. You don't have to answer questions like we did with the last one. Uh, to be profitable is obviously to be useful, uh, to be beneficial. Uh, your translation may uh, translate the word in that way. Um, uh, it has the idea of being advantageous or helpful. Now, in light of what we've seen back to verses 1 and 2, we are helpful in society by being salt and light. If we are consistently engaging in good works, this is helpful, advantageous to the unbelieving world around us. 
because we are preserving a decaying world, we are enabling all men to see the truth. Now, I don't think Paul is only thinking about that, but in light of what we've seen and how all this fits together, I think that is part of his message here. When we are fully devoted to being faithful Christians, it benefits everybody. Okay. And so if we just live in our uh, you know, little Christian societies and we don't engage with the world, how does it benefit anybody? It, it does benefit us to some degree, but it's not going to benefit the world and extend God's kingdom. Okay. So, Paul is challenging us here, calling us to a life of consistent godliness. But, you know, if we are satisfied with being a Sunday Christian and not living like God expects throughout the week, how is this good and beneficial and profitable to others? Even for ourselves, because we're probably deceiving ourselves, because we're actually being hypocrites and we're acting like the world, and it certainly doesn't help anybody. If we put on our Sunday manners and we're nice and friendly at church or maybe in some other get-togethers, but when we go home and we're critical and we're hard to live with, how is this helpful? Our children are filled with angst and our siblings even. If we only focus on spiritual things and not living out our faith in the real world, again, how are we going to be beneficial? As the saying goes, we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. Paul does not think that at all. We must be so heavenly minded that we are earthly good. We are beneficial and profitable. All right, so here's the, the main point of the verse. But um, let me then, uh, in my next uh, point here, to, to, to try to treat it as I think it is, and that is the theme verse of the letter. And if we're right, um, certainly what I'm going to say makes sense. But even if this isn't the theme verse, what I'm going to say is going to make sense too. Uh, but I'm inclined to think that this is probably Paul's main idea uh, here in the whole letter. And so, with that in mind, okay, Paul wants us to affirm constantly, to live consistently, to insist on the gospel message so that we would be careful to engage in good works, and this benefits everyone. So as we apply that thought to chapter 1, you recall in chapter 1, Paul is focusing on the church, that we must have godly men to lead in the church, and these godly men need to protect the church from false teachers. And so let's insist on good works in those ways. Let's insist on godly men to lead us. Let's insist on upholding the truth. And if we do, it's good and profitable for everybody, everyone in the church. And then that's going to bring benefit to society, to our families. Okay? It extends far beyond the church itself. Okay? But if we don't do those things, then the church loses its light in the community amongst ourselves it becomes a community center a gift shop or is boarded up and certainly this is not good at all and uh, profitable in chapter two paul focuses his attention on the family and as we've seen older men and older women are to teach and train 
the younger women and the younger men. Okay? And when this takes place, there is great uh, bl- blessing, great profit. It's beautiful to see when you see a family working as it ought to function, as God intended it to be. When we are doing these things, the older men instructing the younger men to be godly, the older women to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and have a good family, and these things that Paul talked about, uh, there's great profit in this. But when older men and women do not provide a godly example for younger men and younger women, when younger men and women act like the world, then obviously things fall apart. Families devolve into chaos. There are divorces. There are stepbrothers and sisters and all these half-families that come together, and some people are married and some people aren't. It's just what we see in our society, right? Now remember in verse 10, uh, that uh, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that Paul addresses the slave, and as I said, that Part of that had to do with the family in the first century. And we can make application in terms of our working. If we are working well and hard for our employer, then there is good uh, things, there is profit. Uh, But if we don't, then obviously uh, our employer is not going to be very happy. Customers are not going to be very happy. Our witness is very meager or even contradictory. And so our homes then, should be engaged in good works. We should continuously be striving to engage in good works because God has saved us. And so are our homes inviting to others, even to the people of the home? Or do our children desire to spend time elsewhere? Okay. Do we extend hospitality or do people not want to come over? Do our children... Learn more of our vices or our virtues. They always learn both, unfortunately. (laughs) But which dominates? And so if there are good things at home, this is good and it is profitable for all men. Again, not just the individual home, but even beyond that. So then here in chapter 3, obviously Paul's emphasis is uh, on... Uh, society, verses 1 and 2, and how we relate to our authorities and to people in society in general. If we are submissive to legitimate authority, if we are giving honor and respect to those whom God has placed there and so forth, um, uh, if we are relating to people in the community in, in a way that is loving and, as he says there, peaceable, gentle, showing humility and so forth, then obviously this is good and profitable for everybody around us. But if we refuse to submit to legitimate authority, if we have a poor name in the community and people say, well, yeah, I know about that person, you know, whatever. Uh, if we treat unbelievers as heathens and tackleaxers unworthy of our respect and speak evilly about them, why would the world want to become Christian? Why would they want to come to church? Maybe even our church, loving our neighbor, being respectful to strangers, showing kindness and care, even to our enemies, demonstrates that we understand what God has done to save us and that we are committed to serving him. We are doing what is good 
and it is good and profitable. And so I do believe, and hopefully my last few minutes has helped to to demonstrate, that Paul's word here in chapter 3, verse 8, does seem to encapsulate everything he's been saying in the letter. Now let me uh, um, present it in a different way, but in in essence say the same thing. Every one of us has a standard for godliness in our own mind. Now, if we were to say that uh, the perfect standard of godliness is 100 on a scale of, of 0 to 100, if we say perfect godliness is 100, we all have a number in our own mind that we think is enough. Because we all say, well, I, I can't reach 100. Jesus has done that for me, so it's okay for me to somewhere, be somewhere lower on that list. And we justify it. And we content ourselves with being good enough, at least in our own minds. But I think Paul is telling us we need to raise our standards. Maybe, now of course, whenever we put a number, it's always going to be higher in our minds than it actually is. Well, let's just say we have a number of 42 or 59 or 75.3 or whatever it is, right? And, of course, it is elevated in our minds. But uh, let's just say that, that that is what it is. The most godly among us can increase in godliness. And all of us should strive to elevate our standard and become more godly. Just because we do well in one area does not mean that we do well in other areas. Remember what Paul says. We must be careful continually to engage in good works. None of us do enough. All of us can improve. All of us are content with some form of mediocrity, some combination of Christian ethic and the world in which we live. But Paul here, and God ultimately, is calling us to more, to better, to please God, And to be a blessing to those around us. And so don't be content with where you are. Whatever that number happens to be. Strive for more. Be better with your tongue. Be better with your behaviors. Do a better job in your prayers. Be more um, consistent in your scripture reading. Whatever it is, whatever good work we're talking about. Paul wants us to continually engage and devote ourselves to good works. And so, Paul, in many ways, is giving us Christianity 101 here in this letter, and even here in this verse. Remember, Paul is writing to relatively new believers in Crete, and so... The things that we see in this letter are really not that hard to understand. We might debate what specific words mean or something like that, how it fits together, but the overall idea is very straightforward. But even the most mature and the oldest among us can do this better by God's grace through the spirit that he has given to us. And so devote yourself to this vitally important task. Our responsibility is to put our faith into action at church, at home, 
and in the community. And when we do, everyone is blessed. And so let me end here tonight with these words. In verse 5, Paul says that Jesus' good works save us. Now here in verse 8, he's saying we are saved to do good works, not as the basis of our salvation, but as the essential result. In verse uh, 5, 6, and 7 especially, we see that we are enabled to do good works by the Spirit who resides within us. And as he has said at different times throughout the letter, and here again in verse 8, our good works adorn the gospel, and it is a blessing to everyone else. And so here then are a few thoughts about this verse, and so Lord willing, next time we'll look at verses 9 and following. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we are thankful again for your word. We are thankful, Lord, for um, the instruction that we have here uh, in this verse. Lord, we are so thankful for the saving grace, your salvation through Jesus Christ. We are so thankful, Lord, that his work on our behalf um, has been accomplished, and the work of the Spirit is being accomplished in us, applying Christ's work to us even now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we would strive with all of our effort to engage in good works, that it might be pleasing and profitable to those around us, and even for ourselves, and ultimately that it may be pleasing to you as we seek to serve you and obey you. Lord, we um, pray that you would help us not to be content with where we are in our godliness, that you would give us a discontent with our mediocrity, uh, with our certain level of godliness. And, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to raise it to an even higher level, um, not in any way so that we may boast, but that you may be honored and that people around us may be edified. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to do this so that our church would be blessed, so that our families would be blessed, and that those around us would be blessed by the good works that you've enabled us to perform. And so, Lord, we pray uh, for these things. We pray that you would be honored in it. And we pray through Christ and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray then. Amen.